Hey, it's Greg. Thanks very much for checking out Toronto today for this Monday, July 25th. Well, we're picking up after a bit of a stormy night, but a forecast ahead that's very mild, at least compared to the last few weeks of sticky heat, humidity, humidex readings, other H words. So better weather uh, if you're uh, more on the moderate side of what you want from your temperature. Two big stories, kind of to advance. One is the Pope's visit to Canada. He arrived on Sunday. And just the bottom line is we're not going to find uniformity on this. We're not going to get close to a unanimous verdict as to whether the apology that he'll give several times over should be accepted, whether he should even have made the trip or not. All that is going to be divisive, and we can expect that. And I think it's okay that it is. And we'll advance the Hockey Canada hearings at House of Commons tomorrow. Dan Robson from The Athletic uh, joins us to do that. Toronto Today for Monday begins now. Let me start here because it's going to be some big stories, I think, this week that grow throughout the week. This will certainly be one of them. The Pope doesn't come to Canada very often, and this one, it's his first visit. And I'm going to say a couple things about this um, that are really irrespective of the issue at hand. And I'm going to get to the issue at hand. Don't worry about that. I'm impressed he came. I'm impressed he made it. He's 85 years old. There were rumors as recently as five, six weeks ago that he'd be stepping down at a certain point in time. Um, He's got awful knees. He's got really, really bad knees. Not just 85-year-old knees, but below average knees for an 85-year-old human being. And he flew 10 and a half hours. I get it. He's not cramped on a WestJet flight in seat 32C. He's not in coach. Okay? Next to a family that's uh, trying to connect in uh, in you know in Tampa, so they can go to the Dominican Republic. I got it. He he flies in luxury and he flies in style, but he's still doing the flying. And he's eighty five years old, has to be wheeled to and from places, okay, um, and walks with quite a large cane when he walks at all, and that's not for more than seven, eight meters at a time. That was my observation from yesterday and the observation of there's obviously a core that travels with him on a regular basis and covers uh, all things pontiff related and all things Catholic church related. Now, don't say to me, hey, he should be. I know he should be here. I'm just saying I'm impressed from a physical perspective that he didn't cancel. He had a trip to Africa, by the way, uh, that, that he's ended up canceling. By the way, Do you think that the Catholic Church has any reparations or apologies to make for things that they've done in on on the continent of Africa for centuries before? I would make the case that they do. But this one is prominent right now, and this one matters to us. So here's what's going to happen. This was nothing gets universal approval in this day and age. Nothing does politics wise, healthcare wise entertainment, sport, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We can't agree um, even to disagree on some things. We just sometimes go our separate ways if we if we can't find common ground. And there are people that want the Pope in Canada to give this apology. There are people that are floored that it's happening, never thought they'd see it in their lifetime. And there's people that don't want him here at all. That say an apology means zip to me. It means zero to me. Maybe you saw the movie Spotlight when it came out. Big film, right? 2019 uh, Academy Award winner. You got big A-listers galore. Michael Keaton, Mark Ruffalo, Rachel McAdams, Canada's own, Ontario's own, London's own, I think. Um, I always get her and Bieber confused, but I think she's a Londoner and Beeford is a Stratfordite, whatever. 
Um, but when you watch Spotlight, you realize two things about molestation and the Catholic Church. One, um, it's whatever you think about its widespread nature, it's more widespread than you think. The second part is people <laughs> point to things like criminal background checks and uh, a vetting process that clearly doesn't work. No, most people who are going to be abusers, serial abusers, don't have a criminal record. Why? They're craving about staying on the safe side of getting caught. They're not gonna. They're not gonna have too many break and enters if you're a Catholic priest and you're abusing young boys. And this was happening. And this has happened. And we know for residential schools, it's not just about abuse. It's a, and not just sexual abuse, not just physical abuse. It's a culture of intimidation. It's a culture of quote, end quote, beating the Indian out of its residence. It's terrible. And we all miss this. And well, I often say as someone born in the seventies, kid of the eighties, got my university education in the nineties. I don't like you laying everything at my doorstep, but I'll take what's mine. And I don't know how we could have pushed more for this to be in our curriculum in school. And I don't know how we could have pushed more for uh, universities to give us a better understanding of what this was. We're wasting. Listen, I have great respect for university. I wouldn't give up my years in university for anything. I do hope my two sons attend university. I think it can round you out as people and you can evolve from it. College, same thing, same thing. But we missed a lot of stuff. And I know how guilty my parents feel. And if you're in your 40s and 50s, your parents might feel the same way for just missing residential schools in Canada. So we aren't going to know exactly how this is going to go until it goes a certain way. Predictions about how the community embraces Pope Francis, predictions about how far the apology goes are are kind of a dime a dozen. And I don't know how worthy they are instead of worth less. There were so many sins pushed upon indigenous people in residential school harm. And there's two different things that we we look for here. One is accountability. And two is a deep understanding that we had to do better and we missed windows of opportunity to do better. And I don't know what the, the word forgiveness, I was thinking about it last night and channeling my thoughts through, uh, through just writing them down to myself. Forgiveness means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Accidents are like that too. Well, I t- or mistakes, excuse me, not accidents. I made a mistake. Well, planning a, cr- a, a crime and committing a crime isn't a mistake. It's not a mistake to abuse someone. It's a decision to abuse someone. It's not a mistake to... Uh, it's not a mistake to uh, you know cuff somebody in the head hard and and hit them with a with with a ruler or or give them lashes on their hand because you heard them speak their native language whether it's Cree Ojibwe whatever it is and you only want them speaking English. That's not a mistake. And when I say I don't believe in second chances, sometimes that's exactly what I'm talking about. Exactly what I'm talking about. Let me hear from uh, George Arcan Jr. Uh, I'll explain who he is. He's a uh, grand chief from the Alexander First Nation uh, and was the CEO of Fort McKay First Nation. He makes the point that this is what he's hoping for from the Pope's visit. Come in, talk and apologize to our survivors 
so that we could begin our journey of healing and that we can begin the opportunity to change the way things have been for our people for many, many years. This is where I hope we can find some common ground here. Arcan Jr. is looking forward to this and wants, you know, uh, peace, a peaceful visit and, and, and to find more common ground and reconciliation. And others do not. And I think each side has to respect each other here. If this isn't for you, fine. It's not for you right now. Okay, this was deemed by Pope Francis as a, quote, penitential trip. He knows he's got to apologize. He knows he has to step up, okay, metaphorically and advance the cause here. This has been needed for a long time. Uh, There was no name on this couple interviewed by Global News in Edmonton. They plan to go to the Pope's uh, speech tomorrow, more a a mass at Commonwealth Stadium uh, where the Elks play. 60,000 people are going to be there. But this was their thought. But this, again, sometimes it's not just about you, Catholic couple here. This is a, a, a noted Catholic couple that wants this to go a certain way. We have been praying for weeks now that it's going to be a, a really good visit for the Pope, that he'll be welcomed, and that there will be a spirit of reconciliation like we haven't seen before. Okay, sure. I mean, I can want that too, but it has to be a two-way street. It must be a two-way street, and you're just going to have to understand if some people don't want the apology, if some people are of the mind that it's way too little and far too late. Okay, this is this is common ground here. Okay, this is common among issues like this. It's too late. The damage has been done. Talk to the hand. I'm not interested. And there will be some people that have more of a heart of forgiveness. And to me, neither is right. Neither is wrong in this particular case. Anyway, neither is right and neither is wrong. Okay, but again, let's be clear about what mistakes are and what decisions are, what accidents are and what purposeful, systematic abuse ends up being let's be clear about what those things are we're going to have uh um uh, an indigenous leader named perry omiyasu on the show a little later on in the week on wednesday as a matter of fact this is what he said to global news about the pending visit i had a good spiritual kind of upbringing and then they took me away from that and put me into indian residential school and, and what a change, what a difficult and, and, and ugly change in my life. I didn't know how to speak any English till I got there. And my cousin said, don't get caught speaking Cree or you're going to get hit. For like a year, you know, I hardly spoke to anybody. I felt so alone. And Perry says, this apology is not for me. He's not that interested. A, road, a really interesting part of the story is a road got paved that the Pope, the Pope's uh, cars will drive down, the security detail, his supporters, his aides. And the First Nations community in that area has been asking for that road to be paved for decades. The Pope comes and snap of a finger, they do it. So you can understand. I thought that was really prominent in my mind, and my heart thinking, there's something wrong with that, okay? Clean drinking water. We've been talking about this and the federal government, and this is not the only federal government not to get to it, for years and years and years, okay? I don't think the Pope's exactly going to be drinking from uh, First Nations taps where, or, or drinking out of a gal, you know, one of those jugs because f- clean drinking water isn't coming out of the taps and the water's not safe to cook with, bathe with, or drink. Passports have been a major issue. They've been a major topic. Um, to say it's gone smoothly to get one 
is not true. It's getting better. It does indeed seem. I want to bring on uh, the Honorable Karina Gould, who's the Minister of Families, Children and Social Development. She's also been MP in Burlington since 2015. Uh, Karina, thank you very much for coming on. Good morning. Good morning, Greg. Yeah, it's great to have you. It, it looks to me, um, and and I know this has gotten uh, gotten some. Sometimes good news doesn't travel as fast as bad news, but passport applications are now down, and that's a positive in that it probably means to me that more people are getting served, and and the uh, the the backlogs, the long waiting, that seems to be getting minimized now. What do, what does the data tell you? Yeah, so so you're not wrong. Um, things are getting better. They're still not uh, where we need to be on passports, but things are getting a lot better, particularly at passport offices. Um, I think folks around the GTA uh, will note that, um, you know, even though there's still long lineups, those lines are moving pretty quickly. We have teams of managers in place right around the GTA to all of the passport offices as of 7 a.m. Uh, to do the triage. So people don't actually have to get there bright and early, we'll actually see people throughout the day. Um, so that, you know, has, has been better. And we're triaging people based on date of travel. So, um, you know, if you're traveling within the next 48 hours, you're going to get your passport on time, um, unless there's some other extenuating circumstance. Um, and then, you know, if you're traveling later, we're giving people appointments to come back so they don't have to do those lineups. And uh, every week we see an increased number of passports that are being issued across the country. Um, so so that's good. So we're, we're trending in the right direction. When did it become obvious to you that that this was going to be, I suppose, an issue in that things would would stabilize somewhat with regard to our entire country's COVID situation, you know, based on individual household, but a lot of people who'd been sitting on ideas to travel or just the idea to renew the passport, we're going to, we were going to have a flood. We were going to have a bit of a rush to get those documents up there. When did it seem to you like we're going to need, we're going to need to really, um, you know, increase the manner in which we, uh, and the expert to expedite this process. So I would say April. Um, and that's why, and, and, and that might seem like, mm -hmm. well, if you knew about this April, why, why are we here now? Um, part of it is because it takes about 12 to 15 weeks to train passport officers. So we began hiring a whole new cohort of passport officers last April that are coming on board now. But we've been trying to pivot and readjust um, since travel restrictions were lifted. Um, we had kind of two things happen at the same time, which really came to a head um, in, in April. But we, we really realized the impact in May was that at the end of March, beginning of April, um, as travel restrictions were lifted, we got a huge influx of people applying for their passport through the mail channel, which we, mm -hmm. which we don't normally get. At the same time as we got a lot of people seeking urgent passport requests at passport offices because they were had maybe been a bit excited, booked their travel once the restrictions were lifted, but didn't have a passport. Um, and those two things, which would have been challenging if just one had happened, happened at the same time. Um, and really kind of caused um, both the long lineup, the passport offices, but also the, the backlog. But I actually have some good news today um, in the GTA in that two additional offices are going to have passport pickup services. So in Brampton and in Whitby. So even though those are passport offices, 
You can't actually pick up your passport until today at those offices, and that will help ease some of the congestion in other parts around Toronto. Karina Gould is our guest on uh, Toronto Today, uh, Liberal MP, and uh, we're talking about the passport crisis. Do you know the, the, the ratio of how many people try to do it via mail and how many people do show up in person? Because it, it strikes me it, it came as a self-fulfilling prophecy that, like you said, people just left too small a window, showed up in person, and then there was a lot more of a glut in the in-person waiting than there was if you did. I've been that person before where I've had to hustle to an office to do it because I didn't do it in time and, and do it via mail. Yeah. So um, at, back in March and April, it was about 80% that went um, via mail and about 20% in person. Um, and now it's still about 60% by mail and about 40% in person. Um, so we can actually manage the in-person services fairly well um, mm. because we're, it's much more efficient. The mail channel is a lot less efficient. Um, and so what we see is, you know, 25 to 30 percent of the applications that we're getting in the mail have errors that we have to then send back or contact someone. And so it really adds to the delays. Um, and so uh, we're actually trying to increase in-person service because uh, pre-pandemic, we would have had about 80% coming to an office and only about 20% going through the mail channel. And, you know, even if that was not seeking an urgent passport, it was just going in, dropping off your application and waiting for it to your passport to be mailed back to you. And what we're seeing is that now right across the country, you can go to any Service Canada centre to drop off your application instead of sending it through the mail, which is a lot better because someone can check it, make sure everything is correct, and then you keep your original documents. You don't have to send anything away. So um, so really trying to encourage people, you know, if you don't have urgent travel, go to a Service Canada centre. Um, they can review everything, check it over, make sure everything is in order before you know, it gets entered into the system. Um, and if you do have urgent mm. travel to really get to one of those passport offices. Karina Gould is our guest on Toronto Today. She's a Minister of Families, Children and Social Development. She's on Toronto Today with Greg Brady. I'm sure there's been some sleepless nights with this portfolio. I've said that I've said that about Omar Al-Gabra. These are not um, easy cabinet positions in a pandemic when everybody says, when everybody wants something and they want it now. But I'd ask you if you think, do we have a little bit of a build back with with in terms of our our reputation? Do we have a build back to do? Has there been any short term damage done to, you know, the ability to travel to the idea that Canada is efficient, easy to get in and out of? Is there is there work needs to be done here, Karina? Yeah, I, I mean, I think so. Um, look, we're not the only ones in the world who are facing this issue. I mean, the UK, um, the US, Australia, like France, Sweden, they also have, you know, months long waits now for, for passports. I think the whole world thought that it would, that travel wouldn't rebound as quickly and with planning as such. Um, but that being said, like, you know, we shouldn't be in this position and we shouldn't have been in this position. Um, and so there is a lot of learning, I think, that um, I certainly have done and mm -hmm. Um, continue to do, but I also am looking to make pass, you know, to modernize passport the passport system. Right, um, we don't currently have the ability to apply online to renew a passport. We're going to change that. 
just for renewals. We're not going to do that for, for first-time passport holders because right. we still need to make sure some integrity. Well, we need to maintain the integrity in the process um, in that regard. But we can do things better. And that's where, you know, the additional um, ability to now pick up passports in Brampton and Whitby will help. And we're going to roll that out throughout the country. Um, there are just things we can do better. Um, and, you know, this this crisis has really put that, you know, into clear view for us. And we're going to make those changes. And we already are. I know as families minister uh, how hard um, you had to work and, and did work to get the provinces their um, their child care deals. And I wanted to ask you about that, given there was a stat last week and, and we documented it on the show, how there's a lot of child care operators um, that haven't opted in to participate in the $10 a day child care program. Now, I don't know if that's simple supply and demand. If, if, if people are parents are paying and they're full with daycare spots, maybe there isn't a lot of incentive to do it, but that's a little disappointing because it doesn't lower the cost for the average family. What are you hearing? Um, and again, being an Ontarian, what are you hearing about where we're at uh, with with the province for eligible kids for this, there's obviously some poor for profit operators that that haven't pushed in so far and and made it less expensive for parents to send their kids to daycare. Yeah. So look, I I guess I've I've seen this play out across the country, and what I would say is that remember that Ontario was the last province to sign on, and they signed on. You know, in some cases almost nine months later than than the rest of the provinces so Mm. the other provinces and territories had much more of a head start when it came to signing you know to rolling out their um their initiatives and getting people signed on and what i've seen in other jurisdictions is that kind of by the deadline to sign on you get like 90 95 percent of operators um who do sign on there's always a bit of noise in the system when you're creating something new um and ontario is is you know, later to, to get to the game than others were. So they're, they're already behind. Um, that being said, um, I know that, you know, the province is, is working really hard to get folks signed up by September 1st. So they do have until September 1st. But the other uh, complication in Ontario is it's not the province that manages it, but they kind of download it to municipalities. So right. municipalities and providers got the same information at the same time. And so, you know, providers have to work with those municipalities. But again, what what I have seen in other jurisdictions is that once that engagement and dialogue happens, you know, there there are there's some misinformation that's out there that, you know, people are going to go out of business. Well, we haven't seen that in any other province or territory. So we're not going to see that in Ontario either, right? Like the whole idea here is to make sure that we can lower those costs this is a great opportunity for families and actually it's a great opportunity for providers too, because it's about building a better future for our children. So I think that continued engagement Mm -hmm. needs to, to happen, Um, you know, really hear people out, understand what their concerns are and also allay some of those concerns because there, there are some rumors flying around that like are just not going to happen. But at the end of the day, I think this is, I think it's going to be positive and, there's always going to be a few people who decide not to participate. That's fine. Um, but what we have seen, generally speaking, across the country is, you know, well over 90 percent of providers do sign on. Yeah. Let's hope we get there. And, and like you said, the fall is kind of the crunch time to get that done. Karina, thank you very much for the time today. I appreciate it. 
Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Karina Gould is uh, Minister of Families, Children and Social Development. Mike Moffat, uh, Dr. Mike Moffat joins me right now. I want to start with talking. You had a business trip uh, to Chicago a while back, and I find it fascinating because I think Toronto and Chicago often get compared to cities. I, I know people sometimes link us with New York, maybe even with London. I think Chicago is a more apt comparison because there's a waterfront, because yeah. traffic comes to a standstill. What do you see, Mike, in Chicago, Illinois, that would work in Toronto that we just haven't implemented, implemented and maybe it's too late to even implement? Well, I, I think the focus on the waterfront. And I, I think Toronto's uh, getting there. Uh, we've seen a lot of investments over the waterfront. But, you know, just going down that 18-mile uh, trail in Chicago, going past Navy Pier, you know, the, the amount of emphasis that the, the city uh, puts on the waterfront. And, they're, and they're, they're quite proud of it, and rightfully so. So I think Toronto's moving in the right direction. Uh, but I, I would agree that the two cities are very, very similar. Uh, the one thing I would love to see more of Toronto is just pride in the city. You know, there's an energy when you go to Chicago. You know, people mm -hmm. people from Chicago will tell you from, that they're from Chicago, whether or not you want to hear it. Uh, you know, there's just that pride there that I don't think we have as much of in, in Canada. You know, maybe it's just, uh, you know, uh, Canadian uh, politeness. I, I'm not sure. But just that energy that you get in Chicago is fantastic. And I would love to see more of it here. Well, it's a weird one, too, because um, did you fly into O'Hare or did you fly into Midway? Have you have flown into Midway before? I, I so I flew into Midway, but yeah. I, I have been to b both. Uh, O'Hare can be a, a bit of a nightmare at times, but then again, so can Pearson. So, well, that's what I wondered because Friday, well, Thursday, and then uh, Pierre Polyev being on, he was on our show Friday, but Thursday he made the point about this is what we can do with Billy Bishop Airport, and and you know he ruffled some feathers, but he got people to pay attention to the idea, and I thought. That's what serves Chicago so well is O'Hare can be every bit the logistical nightmare and, and time suck that Pearson is. Um, but but Midway is a wonderful alternative that you you can fly in there from almost anywhere. But with Billy Bishop, we're really limited in terms of, of flights. And I'm like, I, I thought about that. And I'm like, there there's two, you know, existing airports that work actually almost hand in hand together. And that might be something to aspire to for a city like Toronto. I think we clearly need something else other than 98% of flights originating from Pearson. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that as well. Uh, I mean, there's been talk for decades about putting another uh, large airport in Pickering to, you know, uh, get the sort of wet east side of, of Toronto taken care of. But I agree that we are sort of running into the, these bottlenecks. And the flight I took from Chicago was from Billy Bishop uh, to Midway. And it was fantastic to be able to avoid those large international uh, airports and be able to take more of a regional route. Like I always think about Billy Bishop, uh, Mike, I think that's too small for, for them to even lose your bag. If they lost your bag, you'd see it on the on the other side of the airport. It's flights aren't delayed. It doesn't take long to walk there. Now there's a, a you know, an underground walkway they built in 2015. Like the first time you fly Porter and it sounds like we're corporately shilling. You just don't want to go back. You you just you found, you know, uh, air traveler heaven. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm a big fan of smaller airlines for that reason. Because, yeah, absolutely. You could, uh, you know, if they misplace your bag, you go, oh, it's just over there on the runway. Can you go out and uh, get, get somebody to find it? So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I think there is something to be said of not uh, rooting everything into these large, massive uh, airports that can be uh, can be impersonal at the best of times. Dr. Mike Moffat uh, joining us on Toronto today. You made a point of, um, of commenting on a tweet from the end 
NDP leader, and I'll read people the tweet. Ottawa elites are enraged by the NDP proposal to send inflation relief to struggling families, but silent when billions in corporate welfare are handed out because they view workers with contempt and corporations with admiration. I believe government should be on the side of workers. A lot of people. I mean, it, you know, it's one thing for a politician's uh, tweets to get ratioed, but that may, there may be a be, bit of a, uh, you know, a pre-bias towards that. But you made the point a few others had. You, we got to we got to clean up our language, as it were. Not that that's that's, you know, raw or visceral, but Ottawa elites almost adds fuel to the fire. Some of what we you live in Ottawa, some of what we saw in January and February. Well, absolutely. And it was, it was interesting for me to see the backlash from the progressive side of Ottawa. So it was uh, Ariel Troster, who's uh, running for city council in uh, downtown Ottawa, mm-hmm. you know, definitely uh, left of center. She highlighted this. And, you know, when, you know, the, the complaints are coming from within the house uh, that this is this is an issue. You know, people who live in, in downtown Ottawa are a bit on edge uh, right now and have been for the last six months. So, you know, think about it. You're, uh, you know, you're a worker. You work at the Rideau Center at the Chipotle. You know, you keep missing shifts. You have to deal with all of this nonsense. And then to be told by the leader of the NDP, oh, well, you're, you're you know, you're an Ottawa elite. I, th- I think it just rub people the wrong way. Uh, I, you know, we get what he was trying to say. But, you know, my God, when we're kind of under siege here, could you just you know, frame things a little bit better. And again, the the biggest complaints were from people who would normally vote NDP. Yeah, I even feel like it happened. You can imagine it happens here in Toronto. And I'm like, you're telling me somebody who waits tables, who busts at 45 hours a week, makes 18 bucks an hour, has to pay $1,600 for rent a month. You, That's an elite like that. Like times have changed if that's an elite compared to when we were in university. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we, we see that here. Like, uh, Ottawa, uh, Ottawa Center, uh, so sort of downtown Ottawa, you know, we have, I think, the highest rate or close to the highest rate of, of service workers uh, in, in Canada uh, as a proportion of the population, because it's all, you know, people who work at, at restaurants, people who work at the NEC and so on. And those aren't, you know, generally speaking, very high paid jobs. And Ottawa is not Toronto, but it's still not the cheapest city in Canada to live in. So, you know, to, to then be told like, oh, you're you're an elite and uh, you're only shilling for corporations. I just it really rubs people the wrong way up here. Yeah, there must be something with the land. I got under a minute, but there must be something with the language like like and and Polyev's connecting with his use of we're rolling our eyes a little bit when he mentions the gatekeepers, the gatekeepers. The gate- well, we do need rules and regulations in <laughs> corporations and in business and in travel. But but there is that element. And I remember the prime minister the Wednesday before the Freedom Convoy came in with the, you know, the small you know, fringe minority. And I'm like, oh gosh, like it's just, it's just gas on fire these days. It just is. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right that this is coming from all sides. You know, mm-hmm. there's not one political party uh, that is sort of exempt from this. And I, I, I share your frustration. I would absolutely love to see a politician come in and and look to unite people and, uh, you know, turn the temperature down on this because people are on edge right now. It's been a difficult two and a half years. So just moderate your tone and try and bring people together uh, rather than using this kind of inflammatory language. Love it. Uh, Dr. Mike Moffat, Senior Director of Smart Prosperity. Got to leave it there, but I love our conversations. Thanks for getting up early, Ford, and have a great week. You too. Take care. It's something to keep an eye on today for sure. Pope Francis arrived in Canada yesterday. Just the third ever visit by a pope to Canada. That, that to me, is going to surprise some people. I wouldn't have said that. And Pope John Paul II 
who had the long run as Pope, quite obviously, from the late 70s all the way, um, you know, a few years into the century we're in now, came into Canada in 1984, came back in 1987. He came when uh, John Turner was prime minister on an interim basis, came when Brian Mulroney was obviously prime minister in 87, and then in 2002. And Pope Francis makes his first visit uh, to Canada here. So this is this is new. And uh, he's here for a specific reason, no doubt, to apologize to the indigenous people of Canada for the role of the Catholic Church in the Canadian residential school system. We talked about it in the 7 o'clock hour, excuse me, 6 o'clock hour, and it's obviously something not everyone's going to agree on. Not everyone wants the apology, but some people are grateful for it. Some people thought they'd never see it, and they're going to get to now. I want to bring on uh, Jonathan Hamilton Dybo, Assistant Professor of Theology and Special Advisor on Indigenous Initiatives at Victoria University um, at U of T. Jonathan is a Mohawk from Kanakwe, a First Nations community outside of Montreal, and we're talking to him in Alberta this morning. So, Jonathan, I appreciate you getting up really early for us on an important issue, but thank you nonetheless. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Greg. I appreciate um, the invitation to speaking today. Of course. It's... um, Expectations vary, and uh, and the desire, as I mentioned in uh, in introducing you, vary. Um, probably we won't come to a consensus by the end of the week. Do you just see it as, hey, this is there for some people if they want it, and other people will will just not accept uh, an apology, um, and we'll just say it's it's you know far too little and far too late. Yeah, exactly. We're going to get um, from community members and, and individuals. Um, so many different responses. I think um, what is important to focus in on, uh, despite how people feel about this, is that uh, he is here for the survivors. And, and I think what's important is to remember what this means to the survivors. Um, for those who had family members that went through uh, that, this will impact them as well. But and again, even within that group, it's not going to be a consensus on how they how they're going to respond. You mentioned in your piece on the conversation, which is a great read, that you're a Mohawk raised in Catholic tradition, and and obviously uh, you've studied and been successful studying at a theological school. What does that do with for your lens? Not necessarily to see all sides of this issue, Jonathan, but what does that do to broaden your ability to? to have conversations about this? Well, I think um, growing up in, in, in my community and also, as you mentioned, um, studying and now teaching within the theological school at uh, Emmanuel College, I think what it's allowed me to do, as you mentioned, I get to see other sides, but I mm-hmm. can bring that conversation forward. Um, a lot of times, I think what happens is uh, many people make assumptions largely about Indigenous people and communities and their reaction to the church. And I, I do find that not necessarily within the community, but outside the community, many are surprised to hear how could Indigenous people be part of the church, especially when this happened to you. Um, and, and I think this this really makes an interesting conversation. And it also had me quite honestly, um, raised a lot of questions for myself about being part of something that you think, oh, okay, um, I, I do need to be real, realistic about, you know, I, if I belong to a church community, what does that mean for me? And then how do I think about that? 
So I, I, that really, for me, was uh, something that I had to tackle, uh, that challenged me. Uh, but I think how I look at it at the end for my personal experience is that uh, I look at it from a difference of the faith versus the, the, the church as a body or organization. Um, I try to kind of look at it that way. Mm. Jonathan Hamilton Dibos, our guest, assistant professor of theology, special advisor on indigenous initiatives at Victoria University in the University of Toronto. I'm glad you brought that up because I think the lens and unfortunately, I I do think we're kind of guilty of it in the media. I know that that politicians sometimes do this. They look for consensus where there just isn't going to be any. I've watched people argue of, uh, you know, I've watched black friends of mine argue about the N word and when to use and when not to. And I just sit there and. And I watch and I listen and I try and learn and I've watched, uh, you know, people just say this is for me, um, but it may not be for someone else that looks like me or comes from where I come from. Like this is going to be an almost impossible issue, as we were saying in the beginning, to gain some form of consensus on as to whether an apology is accepted or, or whether the Pope should be here. Yes, um, the, the consensus aspect there or looking for one answer is always a simple way. And, and I think what we've seen, uh, in particular since the TRC, but also prior to that, is that we, we're dealing with various communities, various nations, um, different ways of, of, of looking at the world. And from community to community, that really, that really changes. And so when you try to get this one voice, one, one view, um, I think people want to deal with that than, under, than trying to understand the diversity that exists. And so you're, you're right. When it comes to the consensus component, uh, there is none. And I think this is why it's so important to have these kind of conversations and, and to learn more about the differences of how people are going to see something. Uh, at the end, from my perspective, um, as someone who's been uh, raised in the Catholic Church, who's been part of a United Church um, theological school, and, and in other also denominations, um, what it's, it's what I've learned is to appreciate uh, other viewpoints and respect them, uh, and, and not to kind of impose my own belief systems on others, uh, but to understand why maybe a person feels a particular way, in, especially around this topic on the church and the relationships and, and why did it distrust it? And I just have to listen. And I think that's really kind of what's key in all this is, is listening mm-hmm. to each other. Saying that, and I agree with what you said, saying that I feel the generation that came before us, my parents born in the forties, people listening who might be older or, or those who had parents born in the fifties, they missed this. And I mean, what I mean by that is they missed the residential school's existence and they missed the, uh, far more egregious things and the terrible things that were going on at these schools. And they feel, I can tell from conversations with my own parents who both were teachers, they feel guilty about it. And opinions have evolved on a lot of other fronts. They probably, maybe when they got married in 1967, they wouldn't have believed in, you know, gay marriage. And maybe they wouldn't have believed in this, that, or the other thing. And we're supposed to evolve as we grow. But I would say, and I want to know if you feel this, like that, like this sort of resonates with you, that the generation before me and you really missed this as a, as something they should have either, you can't speak out about something if you don't know about it. Do you feel that's a common sentiment 
among people of that age in their 60s and 70s. They just didn't they just didn't know. They didn't know. And, and when you think about, you know, the education system, um, it wasn't taught. And, yeah. and from my own experience, and I grew up in Montreal uh, near, because my community, uh, Kahnawag, is right there. For me, what was interesting was that what I learned in, about history was something more along the lines of, well, when, when people first start coming to North America, there were indigenous people. There was the fur trade, and then it moves on, and there's really very little mention about Indigenous contribution whatsoever. So forget about the fact that residential schools are not even mentioned. Uh, the whole aspect of, of interactions and, and how Indigenous people contributed to the formation uh, of Canada completely is, is just omitted. So in, in the sense... Um, it's not, it's not, it's not been part of our school system. It's not been part of kind of this dialogue. Now within first nation communities, those stories are always there. Just what happened now is that, you know, after 2015, the stories came out, um, in, in the sense that Canada was now listening. The, there were other times in 1996 with the Royal Commission of Aboriginal Peoples. It was spoken about there in other places, but it really, people really start to listen in 2015 afterwards. So I think mm -hmm. you're right, that, that whole aspect of, of guilt and, and why didn't we know this? But again, if it was known, and, and I remember reading this, and I can't remember exactly where, but people just thought, well, I lived across the street from them and I saw it was a school for Indian children and they looked like they were being taken care of. And that was kind of what they knew. Um, or sometimes that was the story being sent out to people as yeah. well. Yeah. So again, there... Uh, so, yeah, I, I think with, with, with previous generations and even, you know, mm. students that I teach now, they said, I wish I knew this earlier. Yeah. And you, and you made the great point that now their kitchen table discussions there. What did you learn in school today? This is what I learned. And, and that that eluded us when we went to school. Um, Jonathan, thanks so much for the time. Your piece on the conversation is great. And I know you'll be watching this week with interest. I hope we can chat again. Uh, me too. Thank you very much. You got it. Jonathan Hamilton Dybo is assistant professor of theology, special advisor on indigenous initiatives at Victoria University at U of T. And you can read his piece on uh, his opinion piece on the conversation dot com. Hockey Canada executives are back in front of a uh, committee of Canadian MPs tomorrow. The NDP MP Peter Julians is part of this. Remember, the last time they visited in Ottawa, their funding was frozen a day or two later, and this started an avalanche of withdrawal of corporate support. This started more details, lawyers involved with the eight players, lawyers for seven of the eight players alleged to have assaulted a woman in a London hotel room back in 2018. She was paid a settlement in April of this year. And then we find out on Friday, on Friday, about an alleged assault. Rick Westhead, there's only one Rick Westhead. We acknowledge that from TSN busted this open on Friday about a videotaped assault, um, which doesn't seem to have any gray area as to whether it was consensual or not. The details were harrowing involving the 0203 World Junior Team while they were in Halifax. And two shining examples of journalism all week long to me, to me, I, I mentioned Rick Westhead already were uh, Robin Doolittle, Grant Robertson, and the team at the Globe and Mail with what they were able to bust open with Hockey Canada's special multi-million dollar fund. They used registration fees of players across the country to pay out uh, alleged sexual assault settlements. 
Um, and what we read in The Athletic with Ian Mendez, Katie Strang, and our next guest, Dan Robson. Dan, it's great to have you on. Thanks very much. Um, not easy journalism to do, um, but it's it's. Uh, it, it, I thought it was really prominent. I thought what the three of you put together with some of the details uh, in London, some of the uh, the investigative work was phenomenal, and I credit you for it. Well, thanks very much for having me, Greg. I really appreciate uh, you reading that piece. Yeah. It, it, what are you expecting tomorrow? We just have... A lot more of a lens. I mean, you would have been following it closely. I would have been following it closely when when Tom Rennie and company went to Ottawa five weeks ago. Now, we know a lot more. We know a lot more. And I think the outrage in the country is just at a much higher pitch than it was when they went the first time. Yeah, I described that first time as as a grilling. Um, and I think it was something that it appeared that the hockey candy executives uh, there weren't quite expecting. And I, and I think uh, we're going to see more of that this week uh, over two days um, and there's other others coming to uh, be questioned as well um, basically regarding the state of hockey Canada and hockey junior hockey across this country and also specifically about um, these allegations you mentioned now the the new mm-hmm. emergence of uh, of what uh, is alleged to have occurred in 2003 so uh, it's going to be um, just two days of, of, of very uncomfortable questions being asked and and hopefully some answers being given. Dan Robson joining us from The Athletic on Toronto today. What's the biggest criticism of Hockey Canada from from most people you speak to? Is it more how they've reacted since these allegations and revelations have taken place? Or is it all the before that they were operating within a vacuum, not, you know, walking the walk, uh, not making individuals accountable? Or is it the subsequent reaction, which has seen very little in terms of change or resignation or or turnover or or just a just a rebrand or a reboot well i think it's both i mean i think that um what we're seeing now is is a reality of the former of, of the fact that um for so long hockey and the, the governing body within hockey has sort of existed in a vacuum with sort of internal repercussions and trying to deal with things um, very quietly make things um, go away or so it would seem in particular uh particularly with dealing with this case from uh, 2018 that was settled um, back in April. Um, you know, now you know we're just we're we're relatively soon into this process. I mean, Hockey Canada is saying that they're trying to make changes. They're looking into what they can do. They've they've um, you know signed on to more government oversight, or they will sign on to more government oversight. They say uh, they've also lost tons of sponsors. So I think that we're we're about to see what will come. I think we're we're still seeing the effects of of this big impact that that they're feeling for the first time um which isn't just a loss of reputation but it's a loss of um you know financial stability really when when it comes to having giant corporations um that are partners back away and, and no longer want to be associated with your brand um so i think there's been criticisms on sort of on the past and on the sort of institutionalized um nature of how these things are dealt with uh but rolling forward some some serious questions are going to be asked about um, where things go from here I think a lot of people have gone, Dan, from suggesting maybe, maybe it's necessary for Hockey Canada to, to in essence, be, quote unquote, burned to the ground, a new logo, a new administration, a new name for it, um, a full on a full on rebrand to the point where they're like, not only was it suggested maybe four or five weeks ago, in a way, especially after Friday, Dan, it almost feels inevitable. Have you sort of cross that Rubicon and and would you say something like that is inevitable that it can't just remain as is? Well, back when, um, when I was looking at the story before, when the first 
But Scotiabank announced that it was um, pausing its funding and then all of the other corporations, Tim Hortons and Canadian Tire and others sort of, I, at that moment when I, when I first was mentioned to a colleague that I think this is existential for Hockey Canada. I don't know that um, before it was, I, I thought that there was sort of a, a sense of, okay, well, we've lost some funding from the government, but you know, if we write, say the right answers, change our code of conduct, we can get through this. Uh, but now the pressure is coming from all sides. And, and so I, I do think that, um, you know, we'll see over the next couple of days what kind of pressure continues to come um, from the parliamentary at uh, the parliamentary hearing, uh, but I do I do think that you know it would I would be astounded if some sort of fundamental change within the organization um, doesn't occur, just given uh, the amount of pressure that is facing and and you know and, and the needs the legitimate needs we're seeing um, you know as these allegations come forward about um, you know what what might need to happen in terms of, you know, governing, um, you know, the, the most uh, beloved sport in our country. I know your story uh, with Katie and, and Ian published on, uh, on, on Friday, same day as, uh, as the Halifax uh, revelations that, you know, that they're just unbelievably disturbing that, that uh, TSN's Rick West had uncovered. How did that change some of the conversation? Um, because now, now, you know, now, you know, it, this is not truly a one-off now you know that this is not just uh something something that and it's hard to believe that anybody that would participate in something like this would just do it once but it's it's sort of really up the public anger and rancor demanding not just answers but accountability well i think it's significant that these you know allegations span you know 15 years i mean we're, you're going from um allegations that involve um, that potentially involve people that are now in the NHL at a young age and, and are just starting their careers. And this is going back to people who are, uh, would be at the end of their careers or are already retired, allegedly, And so, uh, in terms of what, what happened there. And so um, previous to the story we had written um, to, on the weekend about what happened in London, um, we, uh, back in June, uh, Katie Ian and I did a big story looking at sort of the history of, of um, sexual violence in, in hockey and particularly in junior hockey and, and at all levels of how these situations have been dealt with in the past. And there's a very, um, you know, the, the history is not surprising. It's, it's something that if you were to go back 30 years, you can just go do a newspaper search and you find a story repeating and repeating. And so, um, you know, as shocking and, and as horrific as the allegations are, I, I mm. think it underscores um, a sense that this was, this these allegations are not just a one-off. I mean, even in um, the parliamentary hearing, um, uh, mm. Tom Rennie and Scott Smith were discussing the fact that they received several uh, sexual assault allegations a year, and they deal with these um, within within Hockey Canada. And so, this is something that I, I think, for it was as shocking as it was, um, just really sort of uh, solidified a reality of this is a systemic problem within uh, perhaps the organization, but also in, in junior hockey culture at large. Massively so. Uh, you can read them uh, on the Athletic on the app or at theAthletic.com. Dan Robson, thanks so much for the time today. I greatly appreciate you hooking up with us. Thanks, Greg. Hey, really appreciate you listening to the podcast today. Thanks so much for finding us. We have a live show tomorrow on Tuesday between 5.30 and 9 a.m. You can hear it at 640toronto.com on AM640 on your radio dial or, of course, on the Radio Player Canada app. That's at Radio Player CA on Twitter, and you'll find the app there. Download it. Easy to find us and all our other great shows. Thank you again so much. We'll see you soon.